about a shout out to Chris Edwards and the band? Aren't they great? Yes. We are blessed, aren't we, um, with great leadership here at Church of the Palms in so many ways. And uh, grateful for Chris's uh, leading in our worship. So we have uh, been taking a look at the story of God. And many of you have uh, been with us since the beginning in September where we began the journey as we have been doing over the last couple of years, starting sort of from the beginning of the story that found in the beginning of the Bible and taking that look, taking a look at the grand sweep of the story of God from Genesis all the way to the end of the New Testament and listening in on how God is kind of working his story of love in and through the lives of various people. And uh, as with uh, all of human life, right, it's sort of an up and down kind of thing. Uh, there's some great mountaintop experiences, and then there's some kind of experiences where you feel like you're in the bottom of the valley, and uh, we're trying to pay attention to how does God work kind of through those up and down, ups and downs of life, and how are we to understand uh, how God is loving us through that and what God might be up to in our lives, even when we're at the top of the mountain or at the bottom of the valley. We uh, last left off with Moses and the people of God making their way out of Egypt, and they have gone into the wilderness, and uh, God is seeking to provide for them there. Uh, we had the golden calf thing going on where uh, they kind of gave up on God pretty quickly when uh, God didn't appear to be right there at the ready for what they needed, and uh, they decided to create for themselves another God, and uh, uh, Moses and God kind of had this little conversation about uh, maybe will not wipe all the people out because of that. And uh, God kind of stays with his people, and uh, they make their way all the way through the wilderness, and we didn't pick up this part of the story. They finally make it to the edge of the wilderness, and they cross over the Jordan River, and they inhabit uh, what is called the Promised Land, or the land of Canaan. And this is where the people of God set up shop and where they begin to inhabit this land that had been promised to them from, from a long time ago. And so the people of God have been in Israel or in Palestine or in that part of the world for uh, quite a long time. They've been under the rule of judges and they've been under the rule of Joshua. And now they're coming into a new time. And this is the time of uh, waiting for uh, something they badly, badly want, which is a king. God doesn't necessarily want them to have a king, but they really, really want a king. And that's where the story of 1 Samuel begins. So we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 1. And uh, Laura usually has somebody read this for you, but uh, it won't take you long to figure out that I was being very merciful to you and not having anybody read this other than myself. <clears throat> so from 1 Samuel chapter 1, we read these words. There was a certain man of Ramathame, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth. You know, no one ever names their kids Zuff anymore. You know, I don't understand that. And Ephraimite, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Peninnah, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. 
So it went up, so it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I'm an arrogant husband, but anyway. <laughs> After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting at the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, only her lips were moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your sight. And the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to the house of Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. Let us pray. We thank you, O Lord, for your story, because your story is real. It's real people who have real problems. We thank you, O Lord, because we are real people who've got real problems and are thankful that we can wonder how your story encompasses our story and how you are working through our lives and how you are trying to make good things happen through our story for the story of the kingdom of heaven. And we pray that you will help us to understand this great story of Hannah and that we may apply it to our lives for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When I was uh, seven years old, my family took a trip to Philadelphia. We were living in western Pennsylvania at the time, and we were going out to Philadelphia to visit my older brother, who was a student at the Valley Forge Military Academy. We intended to go out there, see him, but also visit some family and friends, and to make this eight-hour trip a little bit more uh, interesting for me, my parents held out to me the prospect that when we got to Philadelphia, we were going to see the Liberty Bell. I had heard and read about the Liberty Bell and was intrigued by its story. In fact, all the way out to Pennsylvania, uh, on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, mom and dad would assuage my restlessness by reminding me that when we got to Philadelphia, we were going to see the Liberty Bell. Well, once in Philadelphia, we made our rounds to visit my brother and then to see some family and friends and to stay nights here and nights there, and I was kind of bored with most of it, but occasionally mom or dad would assure me that the Liberty Bell 
was soon in my future. Well, as these things sometimes go, time ran a little short, traffic got a little long, you know, schedules got a little tight, and I can remember as if it were yesterday riding in the back seat of the car and uh, mentioning up to the front seat, Mom, Dad, uh, when are we going to see the Liberty Bell? And I can remember my parents kind of looking at each other, and then my mother looking back at me and with a great deal of remorse saying to me that we are not going to see the Liberty Bell. And of course, we, she went on to explain very logically about how all these reasons kind of conspired against us and that we just couldn't see the Liberty Bell and that they felt so bad and so on and so forth. And someday we would get back to Philadelphia and we would see the Liberty Bell. Of course, none of that mattered to a seven-year-old boy. What matters is that he did not get what he wanted. Now, I assure you that this is not an event in my life for which I need therapy. I have long since forgiven my parents for not taking me to see the Liberty Bell. For the, for the truth of the matter is, those kinds of things happen, right? Circumstances beyond your control, best laid plans of mice and men. Life has a lot to do, doesn't it, with how you live amidst the reality of not getting sometimes what you want. Sounds like a Rolling Stones song. But it's true, isn't it? Ever since you were a baby, you had to deal with the reality that sometimes you could not get what you wanted. At age five, it was perhaps a piece of candy that you wanted. At age 10, it was the television show that you wanted to stay up late and watch. At age 15, it was the boy or girl that you wanted to ask out or be asked out by. At age 17, it was the driving privileges that you wanted or the extended curfew that you wanted. All of our growing up life was and is about learning how to live and deal with the reality that you can't always have what you want. An Episcopal colleague of mine told me once the story of taking his 10-year-old son on a little father-son fishing trip. The two had been planning the trip for several months, and the little boy was very, very excited about spending time with his dad and doing the thing that they both love, fishing, the boy packed and repacked his suitcase at least five times. They went shopping for the best fishing tackle. They charted out the streams and lakes that they wanted to fish in New England. That's not them up there, but that is the picture I'm sure that boy had in mind. By the time the day rolled around, the little boy was almost beside himself, not having slept nearly a wink the night before. The boy was up at 6 a.m. knocking on his dad's door. They loaded up the car, said goodbye to mom and dad, and off they went for the trip of a lifetime. On the second day of the drive up to New Hampshire, my friend got a call on his cell phone. It was the church secretary, Mr. Phillips, had died. Mr. Phillips was one of the pillars of the church. His death was unexpected. His widow was beside herself. After a couple of calls, it became clear to the reverend that he had to go back. This was one of those pastoral moments he could not pass on to anybody else. He got into the car, looked over to his son, and told him the news that the trip was off. They'd have to do it another time. He turned the car south and began the return home. In a little bit, the dad looked over to the sun and could see the big crocodile tears streaming down his cheeks. I'm sorry, son, I really am, said the regretful father. And in response, the little boy said, it's not fair. It's just not fair. Life isn't fair sometimes. Sometimes, oftentimes, we don't get what we want or we don't get what we think we need. 
As we grow older, the stakes appear to get higher and the issues appear to grow deeper. When our daughter was born, she was delivered by a fine, fine doctor, a great man. He was a man who showed great delight in our expectation of our child and then being able to be there and to deliver her and to deliver to us this pride and joy of our life. And he was clear that he did this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And yet he and his wife themselves were not able to have children. Day in and day out, he observed the miracle of new life coming into the world, but not his own. Imagine the ache. Many of you know what that ache is about. Maybe you ache over a job you really want that you can't have. Maybe you ache over the perfect marriage that you want that you can't have. Maybe you ache over a particular skill or talent that you want but you can't have. Maybe it's a certain dream that you've dreamt for a long time but it doesn't appear as if it's ever going to happen. Maybe you look back upon a bad childhood and wish you had had a good childhood. Maybe you ache over, over parents who aren't together anymore and you wish more than anything to get them back together. Maybe you think about a big mistake you made and you ache about not being able to take it back. A big part of life is dealing with the reality that you can't always have what you want. So many of the great stories of Scripture begin with people who ache over the things they want but they can't have. You can't go two pages into the Bible before you come across Adam and Eve who are given the entire Garden of Eden but are prohibited from eating of one tree, and it turns out that that's the one tree they want. But God says, best not for them to have it. Joseph, son of Jacob, just wants an open and honest relationship with his brothers. But what happens? His brothers beat him and throw him into a pit and sell him as a slave. Job, a faithful follower of God, just wants a comfortable life and a healthy family. But almost within a moment, it's all taken away and can never be brought back. Moses, mother, just wants to hold on to her baby boy, but she can't. She has to float him down the river into the hands of Pharaoh. Joseph and Mary just want a simple, ordinary marriage. But then the angel comes, and the words simple and ordinary fall forever from their personal lexicon. The apostle Paul, servant of God, begs to God to take away his thorn in the flesh, but it never leaves him. Life is filled with the reality that you can't always have what you want. But you know, it seems that the good news the scripture tries to tell us over and over again is that often the great stories of miracle and joy and faithfulness and fulfillment begin precisely at the point when you come face to face with what you cannot have. Scripture seems to be telling us that in those moments when we have to deal with the great limitations of life, it is in these precise moments that God is kind of up to something. God is up to something maybe different, something sometimes wonderful, sometimes powerful, sometimes unimaginable. 
Take, for example, our lesson this morning. People who study the book of 1 Samuel, as I mentioned, will tell you that from the very beginning, it's a story about a man named David. David doesn't appear until about halfway through the book, but we know that it's really this is a story about David. David will become the greatest king in the history of Israel. The plot of 1 Samuel is, is the plot of raising up one of the greatest spiritual and political leaders of the history of Israel, King David. But where does the story begin? The story begins with a woman who is deeply distressed, depressed, weeping, praying fervently because she cannot have what she wants. The story of David begins a generation before in a family outside of his own with a woman who desperately wants a child. She can't have what she wants. God, she understands it to be, has closed her womb. Her name is Hannah. Hannah, along with what we heard this morning, also means charming and attractive. But you know, no matter how charming or attractive you might be, it doesn't really matter if you can't have what you want. So Hannah goes to the temple and she prays. She prays that God will give her a son. Now here's the amazing part. She tells God that if God gives her a son, she will give him back. She will raise him to be a Nazarite, which is a young man disciplined to become a priest of God. She says to God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back. And as the story goes, she conceives, she gives birth to a son, and she names him Samuel. Samuel means, I have asked him of the Lord. And the rest of the story goes that she raises Samuel as a Nazarite, and when he comes of age, she gives him to the high priest of Israel, and he becomes for the rest of his life a servant of God. And it is Samuel who alone, out of all of Israel, who alone has the discerning eye to see that a young shepherd boy who has escaped the notice of all of Israel, a young shepherd boy, the young boy David, oh, this would be God's chosen king of Israel. From the ache of a woman who could not have what she wanted came the beginning of the story of the greatest king of Israel. And it all began when Hannah surrendered herself to this great sweeping story of God, that whatever God should give, it is intended for a grand and glorious purpose. In both abundance and scarcity, God is seeking to write a story with our lives. Say it again. In both abundance and scarcity, God seeks to write a story with our lives. Now, one could imply from the story of Hannah that if you don't have what you want, all you need to do is pray and promise God that if he gives you what you want, you'll give it back to him, and if you do that, God will grant your prayer. Wrong. Untrue, mischaracterization of God. It doesn't happen that way. Just ask Job. Just ask the Apostle Paul. Just ask Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. You can't just pray real hard, and God's going to get you what you want. God's not a quid pro quo God. Paul says, after that story about not being delivered from his thorn in the flesh, Paul says, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Viktor Frankl, survival of a Nazi concentration camp, wrote one of the greatest books of the 20th century, a book, in my estimation, called Man's Search for Meaning. 
in which he writes about losing everything that matters to him during the Holocaust, including his family. And then he says this, I came to learn in the camps that what matters is not what I expect from life, but what life expects from me. What matters is not what I expect from life, but what life expects from me. So Hannah's story is a story of discovery, discovering not as much about what she expects from life, but what life expects for her, that in the midst of living, we can't always have what we want. God would have us know, though, that whatever life should give or whatever life should withhold or whatever life should take away, there is still yet a grand story of God that God wants to still tell through you. God is always trying to push the story to good. You see, that's the great lesson that Hannah learned. Hannah, depressed, anxious, hysterical because she had focused her life on what she could not have. But life changed for Hannah when she began to realize that all gifts, even the gifts she most wanted, were gifts that God gives to us, but only for a purpose, only for a reason. God has this design for everything God gives us. Think of it. Joseph, son of Jacob, gets sold into slavery by his brothers, but with gifts that God has given him, he rises to power in Egypt, saves an entire nation as well as his family from famine and starvation. Job loses everything he has, but through the experience is brought into a mysterious, life-changing encounter with God and later receives a new family. Moses' new, Moses' mother gives her boy away, but the, with the gifts he has, he becomes the liberator of Israel. The apostle Paul never loses his thorn in the flesh, but then God gives him this message, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. What life gives you, God uses for a purpose. Every material thing you receive, every spiritual thing you receive, every, every familial thing you receive, every physical thing you receive can be surrendered to this grand and glorious purpose of the heavenly scheme, that from the moment of your conception, everything you were given in your mother's womb is material for the great story of God, that when your mind developed through education and experience, your mind was given to you for a grand and glorious purpose, that when you acquired skills and talents, those skills and talents were given you for a divine and glorious purpose, that when you began to make a little bit of money, every last dollar and cent was given to you for the purposes of the kingdom of heaven, that no matter what you have been given, no matter how abundant, no matter how scarce, no matter how limiting, God sees this material in your life as the grand material for the grand scheme of grace. So I know this guy, Chuck Matheny. I've known Chuck for 30 years. Chuck was born with cerebral palsy. Chuck makes his way now, he used to be, make his way around on crutches, but now it's a wheelchair or a bike when he's doing a beneficial benefit walk. And all his life, Chuck has suffered from the hindering symptoms of cerebral palsy. There's a lot that Chuck never got, but that I'm sure he wanted. His parents, in response to their son's condition and plight, built the Matheny School in central New Jersey for disabled children. And today, Chuck travels across the world telling people that there is no person born for whom God does not have a grand and glorious story. He spoke a while ago at a high school graduation and said this in summary. 
I cannot correct the way I was born. All I know is that God allowed me to overcome my handicap and appreciate the life that he has given me. And I, in return, have become his tool to help others understand why they are here. You see, what God gives, no matter how limiting it may be, God gives with a story in mind. So when you and I begin to look at what we don't have, and we all look from time to time at what we don't have, when we look at what might be limiting for us, and we all look at what might be limiting for us, that's just the human condition. But you know, it's people like Hannah and Joseph and Mary and Paul and Moses and scores of others who will be the first to tell you that right at the moment when you mourn over what you don't have, right when you are faced with the great limitations of life, it is right in that moment that God is likely starting to compose the next chapter, the next chapter of your story, and more importantly, the next chapter of his amazing and miraculous story. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that long ago you knit us together in our mother's womb. And this is who we've become. And there are some amazing things about each one of us, and there are some limiting things about each one of us. There are some things that we look at and we wonder, why do I have this? And other things that we wonder why we don't have it. But Lord, we are thankful that you've given us the gift of life. You have given us this precious gift. And we are thankful that you've given us the gifts that we have. And we pray, O oh Lord, that with your amazing love, this amazing love that went all the way to the cross, that surrendered yourself to the cross, this amazing love that even prayed that you would be even spared from the cross, yet you went to the cross to reveal to us this great story of love and grace. We pray that you allow us to find our own part in the story, that you will use whatever we have for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of grace, for the sake of the world, that the world might see how a great God like you can use people like us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.